2: welcome to that's messed up an svu podcast this is my co-host cara and this is my co-host lisa so great to see you again my love yeah oh that was really sweet well i have to explain you know we talk about an episode of svu we talk about the true crime it's based on and we have a celebrity guest from the episode yeah but call me my love again that was cute (laughs) (laughs) what's up with you my love what's how's your week going Um, I mean, we had a pretty fun day yesterday, uh, eating Chipotle and it has ruined my day (laughs) the next day. (laughs) I am having some problems. Yeah. We ate Chipotle yesterday. You guys came over. I woke,
1: I had an interesting wake up because my toddler woke up a little bit sick. She's got like a little bit of a runny nose and she woke up and she said to my husband, my nose feels crazy. So So I think that's kind of like the new way I'm going to talk about being sick.
2: Oh, of course. It's just, I love (laughs) hearing her figure things out like instead of saying big you know she says heavy like yeah. it's cool to see the way the brain processes and learns how to communicate it's been a joy and she, you know she's cute but
1: also i'm currently wearing you can't see but i'm currently wearing my that's messed up hot pink
2: tank top which is available
1: on our merch store please go buy. and i i put that on this morning and i was in the bathroom with her and she goes that's lisa's shirt and i was like <laughs> Oh my well yeah God. I was like yeah we both have it like she's like why did you steal Lisa's shirt she's very, <laughs> she's got a very she's a little bit of a baby uh, baby Benson she's got a very ingrained sense of right and wrong like today Jared was talking on my phone and I had his phone in my hand and she was like give dada back his phone that's not <laughs> your phone that's his
2: like she's so perceptive yeah she's definitely your child <laughs> There's no way she's not. Um, I was going to say, I have caught up on the current season of Law & Order SVU. Oh, my gosh. The last few episodes. Oof. Um, The actress that was in Homeland, who played Mandy Patinkin's wife. Yes. She's incredible. In that she's so good. Because I remember you saying you watched that episode and you were crying. And I definitely yeah. cried. Yeah. I just like, it just was...
1: Really, like, I think they did such a good job just like encompassing how desperate times have been for people during COVID. Like, I think a lot of us have been lucky, we've squeaked through, but like a lot of people haven't been. And it's like, you know, they just show this woman whose business has been touched, whose family has been touched, whose marriage has been touched. Like, it's just really oh if you're not caught up just grab a box of tissues and settle in for that episode and the one before it was like was like just really like graphic and and also hor- and horrific you know
2: no it's an intense season i also want to say like when will they stop holding benson hostage like when will it end <laughs> how
1: many more times this one was like a little bit of a
2: more low stakes
1: hostage situation did, did you really ever think that this woman was going to shoot olivia i mean right
2: No, but I thought maybe with since she's not a professional gun user,
3: (laughs) she might accidentally,
2: you know, do some damage. I also I have noticed all the Black Lives Matter flags in the in the background of everything. Mm -hmm. I appreciate that. And I also um, love that. I mean, I love iced tea. I love that he's in love. I can't get enough. Yeah,
1: his love is fun.
2: And Carisi has a girlfriend. Yeah. No one told me, no one tweeted it, no one Insta-storied, no DMs, like no one, it never came up. I just am kind of disappointed in the listeners. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's dating this new woman, and I don't know that it's
1: going to make it past that last episode that we just, the first and last episode we saw her in.
2: Yeah, I know, but because I also liked with Rollins' dad when the dad was like, you don't accept Carisi's love because you don't think that you're good enough for him. And that made me empathize with Rollins in a way I never have. You, We all think she's just a dumb bitch, but really she is, you know. Well,
1: I, w- I wouldn't say we all. She does have several yeah. dedicated fan pages, but you I Lisa, know, but specifically no. hate her. <laughs> you know we get DMs. We <laughs> no, have so no, many yes. messages. A lot of people of- <laughs> agree. But I think that we are watching the evolution of your... You're starting to like her. I yes. see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You are. Yeah. I've been watching that from the beginning. Where you're like, just shut up, Ron's, and now you're like, love that messy bun. Like I'm seeing the progression.
2: <laughs> I do love messy buns, <laughs>
3: Lisa. I was gonna tell you about Carisi, but I got too nervous to tell you because I didn't wasn't sure how you would feel and if it would like upset you that's a true fact. (laughs) No,
2: I want Carisi to have love. I want him to feel the love that he wants to give, you know, let him be a stepdad already. Like he wants (laughs) it so fucking bad.
1: So true. Um, Oh, I wanted to tell you Lisa. So, okay. So we had a couple, we talk about incels on this podcast a lot. And a lot of people, a couple of people have written us being like, what are you saying when you say incel? And I guess it's not like a fully universal term yet, but, um, sadly it's, it's, Involuntary celibate So it's I-N-C-E-L It's like a portmanteau Of abbreviations Of involuntarily celibate Which is like Basically like Horrible men Who don't understand Why women don't give them Sex and attention Um, And they think They always think It's because like They're not attractive enough Or they don't have enough money And it's like No if you actually like Read what you write In Reddit forums It's just who you are It's your personality And a lot of incels Have like done murders And like mass shootings And stuff like that Based on like their the philosophy, like it's a very um, what's
2: crazy is I know for a fact there are women that are involuntarily celibate all over town. Right. Why are not they punching people? In the I this? you know, like <laughs> I, I, I just don't.
1: Yeah, I've been involuntarily celibate for over a year of my life before and yes. I never killed anybody. And I and I I went on nary a chat room to talk about it. <laughs> um, but I was reading this article that one of our friends in New York sent me.
3: OK, bragging. Is a,
1: that is about this plastic surgeon in indiana who does surgery on incels to like make them like sort of classically hot to make them like angular and jaw like cut jaws big lips you know what i mean like and it's just like a really wild because like people like one guy in the article like flew from Jesus, I forget where he is, maybe South Africa or something to Indian Indianapolis to get his face just redone. And they're doing multiple surgeries. And this guy in um, Indiana, this is in The Cut, which is part of New York magazine. This article, if you want to look it up, it's called How Many Bones Would You Break to Get Laid is the. is the uh, headline great title yeah and I don't know I just thought it was interesting I wanted to like bring it up to you because it's just crazy how like these guys and honestly they show pictures of some of these guys they're not that bad looking nobody has like deformities like they're not that bad looking it's like if you could learn to like respect
2: and listen and talk to women in a normal way you would get laid
1: <laughs> like yeah you would. I
2: actually just saw a post I wonder it would probably just disappeared but it was like if you can't be friends with a woman that's not fucking you you're going to actually be a bad romantic partner anyways, because I think you have to be friends with your partner. You can't just, and if you're together with someone for a long time, there's going to be times you can't fuck. Like if someone has their kidney removed or something, I don't know. (laughs) Like we're feeling depressed. No, it's never about looks. It's always, it's like people that are like, Oh, if I do this or that, or that, that's the reason I'm not um, meeting someone. And it's like, it's always internal.
1: Yeah, it's internal. It's very racist. They think like that. They think that other races are like taking away all the women like they're they're nuts. I mean, I don't have any sympathy for them, but like I just thought the article was interesting that there's this one guy in Indianapolis who's kind of like he basically is like whatever you want to do, we'll do. Like he a a lot of people, a lot of surgeons will not operate on people who have body dysmorphia. And this guy's like, no, if this is what
2: you want, you can have it. And he just like. But these people are going to be very surprised when this does not help them get laid. I know. It's just not going to happen. I mean, I like that this guy is swindling incels. Like, I'm not mad about it. (laughs)
1: Yeah, they're paying a lot too.
2: go buy a second house. I don't care. He has
1: like he has like patented um, silicone to like make your cheekbones higher and like have that like he does jaw widening to make them. They all look like. They all look like kind of like silly European models for Dolce (laughs) and Gabbana. You know what I mean? Like it's like, okay, this is a little bit too much.
2: The cut actually is doing great work. I think was it the cut or inside? I don't know, but Z-Way's new show premiered and her press is amazing. She wore these one pair of Versace mules that I was like, are you fucking kidding me?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, those
1: are so cool. They're sold out. She wants them. Um, they are sold out. <laughs> if you are looking for a new show, you guys have to watch Z Way on Showtime. Z I W E, Z Way. She had an iconic Instagram live show that Lisa was a guest on. <laughs> yeah.
2: I regret some things I said I mean the whole Point her whole thing is like You know she's a black woman who's Always or a lot of the times in White spaces and it's uncomfortable to Talk about race so she kind of flips it And asks really like chill benign questions But they are uncomfortable And it's just like I want to make white people uncomfortable And I went on it and I think I tried too hard to not to be like I don't know I it's embarrassing to think about But I had a great time I
1: thought you were great I thought you were Great and you do like yeah well she she was was like What do
2: you think about black love I'm like Whitney and bobby kind of messy she's like that's what you think and i'm like oh my god <laughs> oh my god and then the comments are going and they're like this dumb bitch read a book like it's uh it's really fun but she interviewed fran lebowitz who famously doesn't really do much press so it's like really really exciting. yeah
1: and she got gloria steinem and that's on her pilot episode so check it out if you're looking for a new show
2: i do have we should start but you know this is kind of my mo um i one time was booked to do a ms event. Um, and I thought it was for MS. So I just (laughs) rolled in looking like when it was Ms. Magazine. It sure was. (laughs) And so I was rushing. I booked a bunch of shows. I show up. Kathy and Jimmy's there. Gloria Steinem's there. It's a full red carpet. And I'm like performing in front of these women and meeting Gloria Steinem looking like trash. And (laughs) I, I was like, I would have brought a friend. I would have put on a lip. Lisa, why were you not dressing up for MS? Because I had other spots It was just like, oh, I have a night of spots I'll help raise money for MS and go on my way And then I had to cancel all these shows Being like, okay, I'm with Gloria Steinem right now I'm not coming to your show I have to stay Um, But it was uh, Ms. Magazine
1: Amazing Well, let's jump in Because we've got a really, really hot episode today A classic episode, an amazing guest A horrifying crime, the usual So, you know, get ready to be horrified Okay, okay. Today is an episode many have asked for. It is an episode Neil Bear called One of His Most Haunting. Today we are doing Fault, Season 7, Episode 19. Lisa, do you have thoughts
2: of opening thoughts about this episode? Um yeah, I have some thoughts, but I don't know if we're keeping it a secret, but okay. <laughs> some good some good guest stars in this episode, some horrific yeah. crimes, some relationship testing moments. It is an iconic Bensler
1: episode, I think, cuz there is some shit that goes down between them.
2: Yeah. And, you know, Stabler does not handle his emotions. He gets mad at the wrong person. I mean, it's classic in many ways. There's an (laughs) airport moment or was it a bus? You know, it's just it's great. Okay, so
1: we open on a couple breaking up in a laundry room of a New York City apartment building. You know, Patty and uh, the guy's name is who cares? Uh, So there, you know, she's in her laundry room and. He comes in. He's like, I love you, but sometimes love's just not enough. She's like, thanks, Dr. Phil. And then whatever he leaves. And then she's just crying at the dryer. Haven't we all? So then she hears a noise and she thinks it's her ex, Tommy. And that this is like from the New York City nightmare treasure trove, right? Like you're in your building's laundry room and like someone attacks you. It's like very. No one's down there. It's dark, whatever. So she's getting like she's walking towards the noise and then they do this like crazy camera zoom in on her like she's being attacked. But guess what? It's a parrot. It's a parrot named Beretta. I feel like I've seen a lot of exotic birds on SVU. We need to like make a note to ask Neil Bear, like if someone on staff like had a bird thing. Don't I mean, I feel like there's a lot of victims with a bird or like she was always nice to my bird. So I knew she was a good person. We already, we did an episode like that,
2: you know, like there's a lot of birds. Yeah. It's a lot of birds. And I don't know one person in New York with a bird. No. Also Beretta is a fucked up name. Isn't that a gun name? Yeah.
1: I think it's like, it sounds very mafia gun to me. Um, so Patty goes to bring Beretta, I'm sorry. So Patty goes to (laughs) Beretta. Yeah. (laughs) Delicious. Patty goes to bring Beretta back to Mrs. Clifford. She obviously knows this bird. This bird gets out all the time. It seems like she's like, God, this place is a mess and it is a mess, but it's also like furniture is overturned. I don't know why she's not more shocked or like suspicious that something's gone on. Um, People can be messy, but they don't usually have their coffee table like over on its side. Um, She puts the bird back and then she sees as she's leaving, she sees like a foot coming out of the kitchen She walks in and finds Mr. and Mrs. Clifford murdered in their kitchen, blood everywhere. It's pretty gross. So now we cut to the police are there. Dr. Melinda Warner is giving us like the full expository rundown. No sign of forced entry. Simon Clifford is the man, age 47. I need everybody to go back to this episode, pause on this man's face and tell me that that is a 47 year old man. He looks 60. So I don't know. He has a full head of gray hair and a mustache. He does not look
2: 47. I'm just saying. Did you have any, did that, did that ring for you, Lisa? <laughs> no, it didn't. I, I'm really bad with ages. I feel like that's just <laughs> not something I comprehend well. Like people will be like, I'll talk about someone and the person I'm with will always ask like, how old is are they? And I never have an idea. Okay.
1: Well, I have I no was- clue. I thought this man
2: looked much older than 47, but my favorite age game is like when you go back and watch a rom-com and someone is 27 and about to slit their wrists for not being married. Like <laughs> those are the <laughs> moments I love. <laughs> I love when I'm like, oh, I'm 24. Like my best friends were wet runaway. Bro- one of the weddings with Julia Roberts, she's like 27 and miserable. And it's like if you go
1: back and watch the birdcage, Callista Flockhart is 19 marrying the guy.
2: <laughs> And they're just like they're a little young, but it's like nineteen, um anyway, times have changed, but also as a culture, we do all look better than back in the day, I think, yes, at the age of forty seven but I still think this
1: man looks like a not sixty years old if he's a day, but he has been dead for about five hours, his throat's been cut from behind, and it was a hunting knife used for butchering they and then Lila Clifford is the wife, she was on the run. It's not as clean of a Attack because she was trying to escape and then we hear about the third victim amy clifford who is their 16 year old daughter she has not been cut at all um there is signs of sexual assault but no semen or spermicide so dr warner is uh, hypothesizing that either he couldn't get a boner or he got scared off and then he choked her to death so then they're like let me show you the kids room and you're like bracing yourselves that there's going to be like two dead kids but we go into this room and there's no bodies no blood and the two children that you normally occupy the room ryan age nine and rebecca age seven are missing
2: dun dun credits i'd rather some missing kids than some slashed up dead kids in a bed i don't think we would see that yeah we've seen it we've seen it we've seen it but at the beginning of the episode that's a little our listeners are nuts they're like do charisma we don't want to (laughs) <laughs> we don't need we don't need a, a house of dead children i mean we'll
3: do it but uh...
1: <laughs> okay so top of act one olivia is showing pictures of the kids to Kragen, and Kragen's out on the streets and we love Kragen in the street right i love a Kragen in the street he's got his little newsies hat on and he is ready to give orders and At so a the man hung... in the
2: sheets you didn't even do the fun you're like why because i don't you do know is a stabler in the sheets well, you're saying
1: i want a craigen in the streets and a stabler in the sheets yeah you did
2: nothing with that i i'm like shot i was sitting here waiting like she's gonna do a little joke no i'm
1: sorry sorry i didn't <laughs> do that joke i respect ludicrous too much <laughs> but you i was about to say you love that era of music too it's like i as... do um so that's a good, maybe that's a good idea for merch. Yeah. Kragan in, in the streets, Bensler in the sheets. No.
2: Stabler. Stabler
1: in the sheets. But half our audience probably wants Benson in the sheets. Anyway, cut all of this. But that's not the game. I guess she does slap people around. Yeah, you don't know what she's like in bed. Except I guess we've seen her like snuggle up in a man's shirt a couple times. <laughs> all right. Um. So... The manhunt is underway for this psychopath who has murdered this family and kidnapped these two children. So he stabler finds out all this information. He goes, the family's lived here for seven years. The mom and dad have both been popped for drug possession. Their oldest son is in Sing Sing for armed robbery. So then it's like, oh, Halloran wants your your attention. He's our hot R.I.P. uh, tech who uh, finds a bunch of footprints that are all kind of in a tight cluster, like of standing and walking in a circle that has a perfect view of Ryan and Rebecca's bedroom. This seems like insane police work to me to just like walk around and see if you find a bunch of matching footprints, but. I get they did that. And then this little old landlord shows up. He, of course, like everything in SVU is the landlord that knows this entire family story. Uh, he's like, Oh, Simon Clifford, the man who's been murdered is just the kid's stepdad. And he married Lila last fall, but they shacked up right after Glenn moved out. Now, Glenn, just a side note is the name of, the, of uh, this character he's also the name of bob saget's character and one of our listeners who is named glenn said that they started a list an informal list of Glens in tv shows and movies recently and that it is mostly
2: villains bad bad people yeah glenn is not a good name sorry to that man but <laughs> i'm sorry to this man
1: <laughs> um so anyway, they got together after Glenn moved out. There was a big custody fight. They would get violent with each other all the time. And he and he, she he was like, he came by a couple nights ago. He threatened to kill her. And again, yeah, this landlord knows every personal family detail. So now we've got Glenn. He's an in interrogation. And he's like, it was all talk. I was just mad because she was going to move my kids to Florida. She's letting a drug addict raise my kids. And he's like, search my house, do whatever you want. Like he's, he's definitely not, you get the feeling. He's definitely not the guy. And he's obviously very upset that his oldest daughter has been murdered and his two children are missing. So now we're at Sing Sing. They they, they take you on a lot of rides in this episode. Um, before we get to the actual meat of who has these kids. Uh, so now we're at Sing Sing talking to the eldest son, Calvin, They're asking him, how have you made any friends in prison? Are you in the Aryan nation? And he says no. But then Ice T's like, don't even try this shit with me. I see that you have eight eight on your wrist, which uh, Munch clarifies the eighth letter of the alphabet is H. So eight eight stands for Heil Hitler. And the guy goes, well, I like my ass the way it is. So I got to fall in with somebody. That's an interesting quote. I mean, I think that's probably how a lot of people in prison feel.
2: I mean, I think, yeah, you have to just do it. I just wonder if we went, like, what us white Jews would do. Oh, in like a lady jail? I don't know. Like, would the Nazis let us in or would we have no group to go to?
1: Yeah, that's true. We wouldn't be able to go with the Aryan women. Were there Jewish women? Well, Cindy Cindy in Orange is the New Black uh, converts, but just something that she already about. has her she already has her group of friends yes yeah, anything about. if you guys have any ideas for what gangs lisa and i can join when we're in prison we would really appreciate it send those straight to the dms um so he this guy says there's no way i pissed anyone off enough to kill my entire family like and he's basically like i'm not a uh, my my stepdad is scum he hangs out with scum so he's probably like it's my stepdad or somebody connected to him uh, and he said, he talked to Rebecca a week ago, but she, and that she was home midday from school, which is weird. She picked up the phone and that the school had sent her home. No one would say why. And the whole situation seems sketchy. So now we're at Rebecca's school and Rebecca's teacher is saying, oh, she didn't do anything wrong. She was upset because there was a man hanging outside the schoolyard. And by the time another kid came and told me about it, I went out there. Rebecca was right up at the fence and this guy was jerking off. And Rebecca was just standing there traumatized. So she pulled her away. And then she and a bunch of other girls who saw this were upset and they all got sent home early. And the teacher goes, but I drew this just in case. Because the cops told her, don't worry, this guy probably won't come back. And this has nothing to do with anything, which is insane. And then the teacher goes, don't worry, I drew this and just pulls out a stunning portrait of this pedophile. And she's like, I'm the art teacher. Like, it's a full framer. Right. It's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it's this part. All the details of uh, of this character that we're about to meet. Um, so they're at the precinct talking about how they're going to get the drawing out to the media. And they're like, oh, Lila Clifford's bank account just got emptied out. And apparently it was only like sixty dollars. So they try to go get the ATM footage. But before they do that, we do see Ryan and Rebecca's faces on NY1, which is I know we're not allowed to say iconic anymore, but I icon- an-, an NYC
2: icon. Sorry. Uh, I love NY1. One time um, I thought I was going to be hosting the Halloween parade for New York 1, but I wasn't. But I told everyone I was. What? Like, I was just gonna be interviewed for my costume during the parade, but I thought I was gonna be the correspondent. And so I was like, th- and th- so I brought a friend, everyone at the cellar, like, put the TVs on, and they're like, you weren't on the TV. And I was like, I don't Where know. Where was I- the miscommunication, Lisa? Maybe my dreams were bigger than my reading comprehension and I was just like <laughs> like the word the host was just not in it anywhere <laughs> no I remember. I was waiting and waiting and then I like they kept interviewing other people in front of me and I was like I thought I was going to be interviewing people like I just assumed I was going to be the host and it wasn't it was their newscasters so oh my
1: god Lisa Traeger the grand marshal of the Halloween parade <laughs> I
2: wish one day in New
1: York one day so they do check this ATM footage and they see that this guy made Ryan use the ATM. There's like, you can see just like a, like the little corner of a kid's head going up to use the ATM. And uh, meanwhile, Olivia gets a call. They've got an ID on the sketch. So they head to Outdoor Adventures and this guy fits perfectly into the canon of SVU side characters. He remembers an exact order that somebody made at his outdoor store one month ago. He remembers everything he bought i understand maybe remembering that he got the telephoto lens because it's that he got this telephoto lens camera that's like two grand top of the line he's only sold three of them so i guess he could remember that but he also remembers oh he bought a couple of kids sleeping bags rope a hunting knife and i'm like the memory on this guy is um very impressive And then uh, he obviously has looked through and found that the guy used a credit card. And so now, boom, we've got the identity. Victor Paul Gaetano is the name of this man. So they find out that uh, Victor Paul Gaetano was arrested six weeks ago for molesting a nine-year-old. He skipped bail. And he's a registered sex offender for a rape of a child with serious bodily harm that stems from a previous crime in 1987 when he held a 12-year-old boy hostage, tortured, raped, burned him horrible. Um, and as we're hearing all this, we are seeing we're hearing this like simultaneously as the cops bust into Gaetano's apartment. Um, they're checking everything. Nobody is there, but they did find the little girls barrette. So they know that they like kind of just missed them, that they were there. So now we've got Huang on the scene doing a little bit more exposition, kind of reading from a report by Dr. Paula Greenfield, uh, who treated, uh, Gaetano back in Pennsylvania. He basically, this guy is a full psychopath. Uh, he self-reported that as a teen, he sexually assaulted over a dozen girls and boys, all strangers to him, sexuality and inflicting pain are like fully intertwined for him um, from an early age. Huang doesn't believe that Gaetano was a pedophile in the classic sense. They just think he's a sadist and he probably chooses children because they're easier to control. It turns out he was kicked out of his program that he was in in Pennsylvania with Dr. Greenfield after three years because he refused to participate and expressed desire to continue his behavior. And, you know, Stabler rightfully is like, why didn't they just commit him? And Huang keeps saying, oh, he didn't fit the criteria And Finn's like, well, it sounded like he said, I'm going to reoffend. So, how does that not fit the criteria? And Huang explains, you know, psychotherapy encourages you to express your desires and thoughts without fears of being punished. So, technically, I don't think they can take what he says in therapy sessions and like use it against him. Um, So, even though there's all this evidence that he would probably reoffend, I guess it was like not enough criteria for a civil commitment. So, now we go to Pennsylvania and talk to Dr. Paula Greenfield, who, We've already seen in our time doing this podcast, she's played by Rebecca Waisaki. and she has, um, she has big Sandra Bernhard vibes to me. And if you recognize her, it's because she played Marcy, the woman in serendipity who helped that pregnant woman find the baby parents who worked at the flavor factory. Yes. Remember she was like, we got along really great. Like she worked at like a suicide hotline and you're not supposed to like become friends with people, but she like, she got along great with that woman. And then. Helped her give her baby away. So um, she said that Gaetano has probably been planning this for months, maybe even years. Like the planning of it is what kind of gets him going. Um, she's like, I have no idea what he was even like before he was in prison. He's a, comp- he's like a full scale liar. Never isn't lying. Like one second, he says he was molested. Then he's like, no, my mother was an angel. Like I never knew my father. Just kidding. I moved around all the time. Cause my dad was in the military. Like he just was lying all the time. And she said, you know, eventually you just realize he's playing you. He's never telling the truth ever. And Huang's like, uh, these are the worst kinds of uh, offenders because they really make you believe you can help them. And Greenfield's like, you can't help a sociopath. This this whole debate about sex offenders being cured, like, I can't cure you of needing oxygen to breathe, which is interesting because there is research about, you know, whether you can cure sex offenders, whether their urges can be, like, withheld. But someone like this, I think it's different because it's not just a sexual desire. It's like a violent, it's like a desire for violence um, that I don't think you can get from like, you know, being in a consensual relationship or looking at pornography or whatever. So she says, basically he sees weakness in you and he exploits it. And she said her, for her, her weakness was her revulsion of him. So uh, he was like super detailed and would sit and like weave these tales of torturing children um, like it was telling a bedtime story. And she says she thinks her greatest accomplishment with him was teaching him how to imitate normal human behavior. And that essentially made him more dangerous. And she says, I've got all his journals and taped sessions. I don't know if any of this is gonna help you. So then Huang and Cragen are back at the precinct watching one of these video sessions of Gaetano. And that's when we learn that he is played by Oscar nominated legend. Lou Diamond Phillips. So I'm obsessed with him from La Bamba. And here he is as a serial killer. And he's confessing to like, you know, cutting a kid and all this blood that comes out. And it's just really gross because he is really talking about it almost like it's romantic. It's really disgusting. And this is intercut with scenes of Huang interviewing one of Gaetano's victims. And I've always remembered this interview, like from when I watched this episode years and years ago, I always have remembered this interview with this guy because... It's just so sad how, like, he just lives in a bubble of trauma. um, And, like, he says, like, I never knew people could do things like that to your body or be so evil. And he's basically like, I don't leave the house. I work online. I haven't gone outside in years. But, you know, I've got TV and I can order anything I want off the Internet. And uh, it's not a bad life. Not a bad life at all. And I just always remember that monologue as... For lack of a better word, haunting.
2: Um, (laughs) Yeah, this comes up a lot. And I've I've been thinking about it a lot, how so much like, quote unquote, bad behavior, like these things stay with you and just how much trauma people are carrying around and that we need to stop judging people for their wacko behaviors and realize like or try to think like, oh, what made them like this? Right. Instead of just being mad at people. Yeah. I'm just honestly hunting ground has taken over for the worst interview for me because like the rope mark on her neck. Do you remember? Oh, the girl that's in the in, that's in the mental institution. Yeah. Like, yeah, that one when you were like this interview fucked me up. I was like that hunting ground one has not left my brain.
1: For sure. So basically now they're saying they're they're getting more clear picture of this guy. And they're like, if the kids are around still and alive, they won't be for long. So like we got to move fast. So then they get a tip that there's been a sighting of Gaetano at the George Washington Bridge bus terminal, where I've never been. Uh, I think Lisa, you said you've been there one time. I've been on the bridge. I don't know about the bus terminal. Oh, I thought you said, Oh no, sorry, it was Hannah. Hannah's been there. Um, <laughs> so we meet this fucking money transfer guy. I can't stand this guy. I, I Whenever I watch this episode, I want to punch this guy in the face. Look, he's very smart. He works at a money transfer place where Gaetano came, and he recognized him because he, he recognized the kids. The kids look like zombies, and we're just like, standing there traumatized. So this guy is smart. He told him, oh, uh, I don't have your wire transfer yet, but it's coming in. It'll be here by four. And he stalled him so he could call the cops. Very smart. That's where this man's intelligence ends. Then he has no chill at all they're all hanging around the bus station waiting for Guy Tanner to show up and this guy is sitting there like wide-eyed like doing a cartoon
2: impression of somebody who's nervous it's definitely top like comedic moments on SVU I would say I mean, he won't stop looking at this killer. Like, it's like, just
1: look down at a piece of paper and draw a smiley face. Like, do something else besides look so fucking
2: obviously terrified. And he keeps talking to Stabler. Like, he keeps talking and Stabler's like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, because,
1: like, this guy's (laughs) looking over and seeing a man staring directly at him, but using his mouth to talk to the person that's (laughs) in front of him. Like, it's completely, it's just like, oh, he's driving me nuts. And it's also like, you're behind glass and the cops are everywhere. Why are you worried that something's going to happen to you? Like, he's like, don't leave me here. Oh, I'm going to get murdered. It's like, you're fine. So Gaetano shows up. He sees money order guy looking totally fucking flipped. So he tips him off. He starts running. And now this is where like things get completely nuts there's like a million people in this bus station uh Gaetano and Benson and Stable are just like knocking people over left and right like throwing elbows people are just falling packages are flying They're all like, you know, splitting up and taking different tacks and trying to find this guy, head him off up here, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly, like a whole mass of people start running, stablers running against the flow of traffic. And we don't really know why they're running. Maybe Gaetano was like there and just pulled a knife or something. And then Elliot sees the little boy, Ryan, just standing there dazed and looking at him. And he's like, Ryan, come here. I'm going to get you. And then he looks over and sees Gaetano holding the little girl. Then Benson comes out of nowhere and goes, freeze. He slashes Benson with a knife in the neck and he just heads up the escalator with Ryan and Rebecca. So Stabler has to think, which I guess an escalator seems like a sketchy. They're so slow moving. I don't know. (laughs) Stabler has to think fast. He's like, do I chase the kids and the guy or do I check on Olivia? Like he may have just like hit her full carotid artery which is not in her butt and like he, she could be dying. Right. So he decides to check on Olivia. She's like, I'm okay. I'm okay. Go find Gaetano. Um, You can tell he really thinks that he has like he, when he comes up to her, like he looks like, no, like she's dying. So you can tell that he thinks it's uh, really serious, but it is more of a Nick and then Stabler gets upstairs and there's a crowd of people gathered around and Finn's like, don't come over here. He killed Ryan. He slit his throat. And uh, Stabler is like super, super shook. And Gaetano has disappeared with Rebecca into the crowd. I don't understand the the skills of these killers to just move through (laughs) crowds holding a child. And I don't know. I guess everybody was getting out of the way because he has a hunting knife in his hand. So now Elliot is freaking out about how close he was to saving the boy. And Elliot's like, uh brooding and all mad and olivia like trying to console him and he's like please don't try to help me out right now and it's like a little bit intense because they both were involved in this and but he's also, clearly it's
2: it's like yeah it is your fault it's like you, you know what i mean it is your fault you fucked up would you rather hear that right now you got a kid killed what do you want stay yeah there? it's like you don't want anyone to be nice to you then i'll tell you the truth it's your fault she never said elliot help me come over here like he made yeah so
1: we get into this but Basically, uh, they're, they're having this little argument over like where, how he, where he could have gone. And then, uh, uniformed officers, like there's a carjacking two blocks up the street. They like assume this has to do with, I guess it probably fits that Gaetano's description. So they get to the street of this carjacking. This woman is like, they took my car. He had a kid with him. I just got out of the car, blah, blah, blah. She's hysterical. And then uh, Elliot, all of a sudden out of nowhere, just picks up a pipe because there's just pipes lying around in New York, guys. It's the city that never doesn't have pipes lying around and just slams uh, the window in of this car. And Olivia's like, what the fuck are you doing? And he's like, this car has a flat tire. And look, check out, there's no tags. He obviously came to this block for a certain reason. And this is his car. And Olivia's doubting him. And he turns out to be right. He stabler finds a notebook with a guy's name on it, and the name of the money transfer place, and an amount of money and a phone number. So they bring in this guy. Who's uh the one who's supposed to be sending Gaetano the money. And he's like, I only know him from the Air Force. We haven't seen each other in 20 years. Stabler's like trying to do this bad cop shit. Like, if I find out you're lying, I'll fucking wear your he- head for breakfast. Or whatever. I don't know. What am I even talking about? Like I'll <laughs> wear your he- head. For I'll breakfast. wear your head for breakfast. That's <laughs> that's the kind of shit. So He's like doing his bad cop shit. He storms out. Olivia follows. And now we get a real moment with these two. She's like, you got something you want to say to me? Because if you do, let's hear it. And he's like, why didn't you shoot Gaetano? And she's like, he was using a child as a shield. There were civilians everywhere. I couldn't get a shot. Like, I mean, you have to agree with her. Like, she's not going to endanger other people. And then he's like, I can't be looking over my shoulder all the time to see if you're OK. And I need to know you can do your job and not wait for me to come to the rescue. So kind of fucked bitch. up this stuff. And she's like, you know, that's not how it is. But then Cragen, Daddy cragen comes up and breaks up the kids fighting and he threatens to suspend them. Suddenly, it's like we get that call that they get, you know, once per episode, at least Warner's got to show you guys something. So they go to see Melinda Warner, uh, the Emmy, and she shows them that there is something phosphorescent all over the jacket that Ryan was wearing. Elliot is really continuing to just be the mayor of Asshole City. And he's just like, what are we here for a light show? Like, what is this? Like, what is it? Just like, I mean, if you're running it for tests, like, why did you bring us down here? Like, And then he just kind of walks out and Warner goes, sometimes all that brooding intensity is just annoying. And I'm like, (laughs) put it on a t-shirt, Dr. Warner. I love it.
2: I mean, if you told me 15 years ago that I would be hating on Stabler this hard, I would never have believed you. <laughs> I like, can't believe how much I've turned on him, re- like, re- revisiting and such.
1: We've all grown. This toxic masculinity will not stand, man. Um. So, Warner also has a cell phone that she found with the boy. And Olivia's like, well, we found all that, we accounted for all the cell phones. So, this one must be actually Gaetano's cell phone. And it turns out it is Gaetano's work phone. And the tech is able to basically because it's a work phone, they have this extra tracking software on it because no one trusts their employees and they're able to pull up all of Gaetano's whereabouts for the last month.
2: Yeah. And I also was about to say, when has Melinda ever failed you motherfucker? Yeah. (laughs) When has she ever played games with you? Always comes through. Right. Sometimes I have had the thought before,
1: why wasn't this a phone call? You know, because sometimes they do go all the way to the Emmys office and it's
2: like, Okay. I feel like you could have texted this. You know why it's not a phone call because it's not cinematic and we need to see her. I know. Of course. Okay. Sorry.
3: I I believe,
1: (laughs) I believe you. I'm just saying this in this instance, it's like she had to give you the cell phone and the other information is important too. So he's just being a bitch. Um, and now while, while Olivia's out there chasing down fucking lists of places, this guy has been. Elliot's just like showing up at Huang's office, like crying because he basically won't go see a therapist. And um, he's like, I wish I didn't. And Huang's like, care so much. And he's like, that's what makes you a good partner. And it's like, "Okay." And then he goes, she made me turn away. And he's like, how? How did she make you do anything? And this is the full philosophy of the summer camp that I went to, where as a counselor, they taught us like this whole philosophy of uh well it's been called many things reality therapy control theory but like basically the idea that no one makes you feel any way you feel the things you feel you choose to feel how you want to feel so it's exactly what huang is talking about here you choose you made your decision you chose your feeling for olivia and that's not something you can blame on her um and so elliot does realize eventually that it was his own choice and that he's responsible for it so now He's back at the precinct, and he gets the results of the glowing phosphorescent substance on Ryan's jacket are copper and zinc cadmium sulfite. Of course, this is going to lead us into a Munch monologue where we don't really care, but he basically is like, well, the military was spreading this stuff all over the city back in the 70s, whatever, We basically find out that this is a chemical that like, uh, was involved with sort of like a simulation of nuclear testing. So it would be probably found at an old military facility or like a current military facility. So Stabler and Benson meet up at this industrial site in New Jersey, a metal plating facility, but it was once a military facility. So they're kind of, they feel like they're getting close. The place looks totally shut down. Perfectly great place to hide a child and hide out if you're a wanted fugitive. Um, so they enter the facility really quietly. They smell cigarettes. They kind of know that they're close. They separate so they can close in on Gaetano. And there's kind of a struggle that we don't see. And then a shot is fired and Olivia, like, you know, jucks for cover. And when she comes back up, she basically sees that Gaetano has Elliot, like with a gun to his head. And they're both screaming like, drop your weapon, shoot him, drop your weapon, shoot him. It's like really, really intense. And, um, I don't know what I would do. I mean, I would probably just cry or so. I don't know. Um, So there's a full standoff happening in this final act of the episode. It's just like, it's Olivia is trying to talk Victor down, but you know, he's like this full sociopath. So he's lying. He's like, I killed Rebecca. Oh no, wait, just kidding. She might still be alive. I think I left her in a van in Newark. Like you guys can go find her. Like, you know, he's giving them all these lies, but um, you can tell he's getting spooked. Cause like, the uh, Lou Diamond Phillips is doing a lot of like really good facial acting where he's like, oh, actually, you know, and he you can kind of he's not like the most cool, calm serial killer of all time. Like he's definitely realizes he's being closed in on because he knows there's backup coming and he's like, you know, kind of taunting Olivia like you better take me out in one shot. My reflexes are pretty good. I could shoot your partner before I go down like all this stuff. Uh, And then at one point he goes. Uh, but yeah, try it. Definitely. It'll probably turn out great. And I thought that was really funny. I was like, look at this funny serial killer. He
2: just had a, a little bit of comedy. And Stabler is so annoying in this scene that I'm on the side of the killer. It's like, it's too much. <laughs> he's he's screaming at Ben. Yeah. He just keeps going. Like-
1: Shoot him.
2: It's like it's a it's a
1: lot. So they totally realize he's lying about the girl like that. I mean, they think pretty much that he's killed her. Um and they're just Elliot and Olivia are just making like intense, prolonged eye contact for a lot of the standoff. And then Olivia says, I'm sorry at one point or sorry. And I can't tell if it's because she's about to shoot him or because she's refusing to shoot him. And then suddenly out of nowhere, a sniper like blows Gatano's face off. Like a guy from uh, the NYPD comes in uh, from the side quiet and has just, you know, suspect down. <laughs> what
2: if it was a cop from Italy just visiting, <laughs> just helping. <laughs> sorry. Because they trade people.
1: Yeah. You know, they send their man in Rome over there and all that. Um, so yeah, a member of the carabinieri from Rome uh, shoots Caetano's face off. And then Elliot and Olivia are just kind of standing there staring at each other. It's really intense. Like the other cops are moving in kind of to assess the scene, and these two are just staring at each other. And then suddenly they hear like something faint off in the distant. Elliot's like, everybody be quiet. And they can kind of hear a child crying, whining. And so they investigate in the warehouse they find Rebecca in a crate she's alive
2: um, so that's like the small silver lining on this horrific episode of crime I'm also acting like so annoyed but it's only because I've seen this episode dozens of times and it is a really intense scary scene if you don't know what's gonna happen yes you know you're sure. like Stabler shut your fucking mouth Benson know what's up but then you're like Benson he like <laughs> Lou Diamond Phillips is uh, you know he's a lunatic he, he'll kill all of you like it is yeah uh, it is a very very intense awesome scene i understand why neil bear loves it
1: yeah it's a it's really i mean this episode fully tests their relationship uh the whole time so at the hospital we find out that rebecca's okay like because they were on the run so much he didn't really have much time to inflict any physical injury on her so she's actually pretty okay besides the trauma of you about know, her say. whole family being yeah. fucking killed <laughs> she's
2: not okay um but she she's <laughs> physically okay <laughs> she um, will never be okay
1: right and Elliot and olivia are kind of having a heart to heart and she and he's like i know you would have taken the shot and she's like no i wouldn't have like you expect me to cause your death to take you away from your children and your wife like and then she says what about me Like the idea of living without Stabler is so unthinkable to her. Like, how could I possibly have ended your life or been part of that? And he's like, we both chose each other over the job and we can't let that happen again or we can't be partners. And he's like, you and this job are the only things I've got anymore and I don't want to wreck that. So final button of the episode is Olivia goes into Cragen's office and he's like, what's up, Liv? And she's like, I want a new partner. And Dick Wolf it's really a nutty episode because I think you think they want you to think that Stabler is the one that's going to call off the partnership, but really it's like Olivia. Like, I think she realizes how much he is meaning to her,
2: but what's the next episode. This isn't before like, ter- like cause they don't switch off
3: partners. Oh, no, he like, what a- happens? He has a new partner. He teams up with a new partner to investigate a sexual, it's called fat.
2: Yes. Okay. Fat is a really funny episode. And, um, Anthony Anderson is like a dick and a brute, and Cragen pairs them up so Stabler can learn what it's like to work with someone that doesn't know how to follow the rules. Yes. And I believe also this coincided
1: with her taking a pregnancy leave.
2: Yes. Well, because I was also gonna say, I don't know why I said this episode's so funny. I always was fine with it, but the actress Rooney Mara has talked shit about being on svu and this episode she's just that been sucks. like she's just been like that episode was fucking stupid like she just didn't she was her dad like owns the giants and she's a billionaire i'm and sure her mom she's owns like the page like each parent owns an nfl team. yeah
1: i'm sure she's like why did i bother doing one episode of episodic television like who, who <laughs> cares isn't she with somebody like terrible right now like yeah Joaquin phoenix shia labeouf oh no yeah walking <laughs> um okay let's take a quick breakity break and then lisa will take us through the true crime <laughs>
2: Hello, welcome back. Um, This crime is bad and the criminal is bad. And I don't know if this is good news or not, but he did uh, just actually die march 29th 2021 he died of brain cancer in jail so you know if you want to pop a champagne glass while you listen to the rest of this maybe you'll be happy (laughs) um he did have like he got charged and convicted of with like 10 life sentences and 10 death penalties like he was gonna die in prison no matter what and i don't know whatever it's brain cancer so um lou diamond phillips character is based on joseph edward duncan And what's wild is um, they made Lou Diamond Phillips character have three names, too. There is a lot of similarities. A, a lot of job. serial
1: killers have three names because you don't want to com- you don't want to mix them up with someone else. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, because like if there was like another serial killer named Lisa Traeger, like wouldn't you want it to be like Lisa Mercedes Traeger or something like that, so that
2: it's like that's not me. That ain't my middle name. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. Wow, they do it on purpose. So it's not like John Wayne Gacy goes by John Wayne Gacy. They were just like we yeah, like because I mean, Joseph Duncan, you got to think is a pretty kind
1: of easy name. I think one of the only people that isn't, is like Ted Bundy isn't, Jeffrey Dahmer isn't, but a lot of serial killers go by three names.
2: That is really cool. I like um, learning that information.
3: You can always learn. Should I stop going by three names? (laughs) (laughs)
2: Oh, that is one of my favorite trends on Twitter. Like when we all hate someone and then someone has to be like, I'm a different Mike Pence, you know, or something yeah. like that. Like, <laughs> it's not me. Um, and they all interact with each other being like, Oh, I got it bad. Um, so I, I enjoy that. Yeah,
1: thing. Like, do you remember when, um, Becky with the good hair thing came out and everybody was confusing Rachel Ray with Rachel Roy? <laughs> yes. And everybody was sending Rachel Roy. Like they were like
2: putting bees in all of her Instagram. <laughs> it's like, that's not, that's Rachel Ray. <laughs> like. I, I love it. Um, <laughs> So this um, takes place in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. I don't know if I'm saying it right. I spelled it phonetically so I wouldn't fuck it up. And then it still looks insane. Yeah. Coeur d'Alene, I think is what it is. Yeah. Coeur d'Alene. Coeur d'Alene, Ohio, Idaho Idaho Idaho. Not Ohio potatoes. Okay. So um it's a town, you know, no one fucking lives in Idaho. So it's a chill place. There's fishing, vacations. It's not um a, a bustling metropolis. So it's a calm town. And then May 16th, 2005, the most brutal crime in the area that has ever happened happened. Um it was a Monday afternoon. And Robert Hollinsworth uh, calls the cops, and he's just a man walking in the neighborhood and walks to his neighbor's house, and there's blood stains all over the front door. So he calls the police, and it is a small town, so the cop is like, well, I know that family. And so he goes over there and he sees the blood in the front door. So he walks around and in the back there's also blood on the back door and the back door is propped open a little bit. So he obviously knows something fucked up is happening and he calls for backup immediately. Um, and so the house is Brenda Grony, and she lives with her boyfriend Mark McKenzie and and her three kids. So he is also a stepdad like in the episode of SVU. Uh, the three kids are Slade is 13, Dylan is 9, and Shasta is eight and these are very like 90s fun names i really enjoy it i i wish i didn't since horrific things are about to happen so after backup comes all the cops they enter the house and they find a young female and male face down and bound um with their hands behind their back and then uh their heads were mutilated so these people were bludgeoned multiple times in the head and it's Ugh. just very severe head trauma Um, there were three bodies and they were organized head to toe so it's like an open square with a gap missing I don't know if you need to know the positioning of the bodies but they were positioned that way and there is a third body and unfortunately that is 13 year old Slade so we have 13 year old Slade uh, mom stepdad are all bludgeoned and dead and there's blood stains everywhere in the house like every room every wall there's just blood fucking everywhere there was blood in the little ones rooms so the other two kids and they but they the cops did start to think that the kids had a different fate than the people in the living room since they weren't there like they just I don't know if it's optimism but the young kids were nowhere to be found so You know, they're not dead in front of you. So that is a good sign. By nightfall, they still couldn't find Shasta or Dylan. So they contacted the FBI. Um, And the dad, it was really sad. Um, He was talking. This is an ID investigates, you know, crime show that I watched in, in it. He was like, "It's tough because you're grieving one child, but you have to put that all aside to go look for another one and be hopeful that your other kids are alive." So it, it was just—I'm sure it's so many feelings to uh, juggle. Like, and this pure... is the biological dad, like Glenn in the episode. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm actually pretty. Um shocked how close SVU really like grasped onto some of these details usually it's pretty funky and they've really <laughs> stuck they really stuck to a lot of key facts of this case um so an amber alert goes out no clues really I remember this by the way like really? I was living in New York City I remember these
1: two kids being missing this was like on national news I feel like I remember because I remember the name Shasta I was like Shasta's like such a That is such a 90s name. Like, I remember these two kids uh, with their and I remember their names like that. They were everywhere.
2: I do not remember. It does. It did go international since like they just couldn't find them for so long. And it was so brutal. But damn, not international. It went national. Yeah. Um, but they had they just had a really hard time with the case. There was no witnesses, fingerprints, weapons like nothing. So they had to spend their time learning about the victims and work outward because there was no evidence left behind. So the background on the family is Brenda and Mark dated seven years. Great relationship. Mark had a manufacturing job in Spokane, which is 40 miles away. And Brenda gave up her cleaning business to stay at home. And uh, they were known to be partiers. They loved a good time. And he loved the kids kids. And so, yeah, they were just like family people who love to party. I bet we would be on vacation with them in Palm Springs. Um, <laughs> the crime was so violent that they assumed it was someone that knew the family and had a lot of anger towards these people. But confused about the kidnapping like why wouldn't you snatch the kids when they're walking home from school or going to the store to get candy like why are you killing parents and taking kids there's lots of easier ways to snatch kids (laughs) stay tuned i'll teach you how okay um (laughs) So they were like, it has to be personal for sure. Um, So they had to rule the dad out. And that's Steve. And they had a hard time getting along post-divorce in terms of, like, custody or real estate. But... I mean, like most crime movies shows, real life cases, you have to exclude like the husband, the father, like everyone that's close to it. And so what made people suspicious of the dad was he was on television and he made a wild statement, like a plea to the killer and was like, they had nothing to do with this. Leave them alone and bring them home safely. And so everyone's like, have to do with what, bitch? Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. So everyone just like assumed he, you know, maybe he owed money. I don't know. But they're right. like, what the fuck are you talking about? And so they gave him a polygraph to see if there was weird things. There was one moment of weird things with the voice. But um, is like, I was home alone the night of the murders. And they found cell phone and laptop records to prove that he was home. So he did have an alibi for that. Stephen Brenda the biological parents. They also have two adult sons, Jesse and Vance, and they've both been in a lot. They've both been in a lot of trouble. They were bad teens, you know, drug users. And Jesse had an airtight alibi because he was in jail. So that's great news for armed robbery. And then Vance, they came away with investigating him that he had no involvement and they felt really confident in that decision. So they excluded everyone in the family. Now, what do they do? So the cops, went to the tip so they started getting tips um about a barbecue before the killings they were trying to see if someone from this barbecue did it because there was some drama and there was um like a little fingerprint on the door that matches one of the party guests and that was Gary Youngwood he did have a criminal record and Jesse the son the older son said Youngwood owed his mom and Mark two thousand dollars so they're like okay is this a money thing um they tried to find him to interview him but it was really hard to find him and so they got and in a warrant to track his cell phone to find him and it was super hard to locate him and more suspicious that right after the murders took place he took off time at, he he like went on vacation to boise so he's nowhere to be found and they're like he's avoiding us cuz he knows something um but he had a parole officer and so the parole officer contacted him and was like they're looking for you bro and he came rushing back to town. Okay. So he wanted to clear this up. He said that they grilled uh for hours with they grilled oh they grilled him for hours. This is not about the barbecue. <laughs> they grilled. This is not about the
1: barbecue anymore. <laughs>
2: So they grilled this guy for hours. He denied to have anything to do with these murders. He offers to take a lie detector test. He passes it. And again, like, so they've cleared everyone and they have to go to the more tips. So one of the tips was maybe it was a biker gang situation because the weapon was a hammer. And I guess outlaw bikers do hammer jobs like that's their cool way to kill. Um, And it and Brenda was really into motorcycles. So they looked into like what was going on. And the biker theory also died out. So a lot of dead ends in this case, they can't crack it. And um, now by this time, the blood at the crime scene comes back, like all of the testing. We have our own Melinda Warner and none of the blood is Shasta or Dylan's. So that's good. And that you know is hopeful that the kids are alive somewhere but what's sad is it was the 13 year old boys so it was his blood all over which means that he was like injured bleeding in pain walking around the house um and then dropped by his mom to fucking die next to her i mean it's brutal Uh. it's really brutal so like the blood all over was this young child's so it's really sad if you need to take a moment um And this isn't like they've already exhausted so many different things. And it's only May 20th at this point, only four days after the murder. Um, So they have done a lot of work, honestly. Um, But there is a twist toxicology reports say that the parents did weed and meth hours before they were killed. So they're like, can this be a violent drug gang? So they start looking at the local skid head gangs um, that have been robbing people. But none of the theories they had explain the child factor. So that's what was so hard. It's like, why wouldn't you kill everyone? Why are you taking Like, just it didn't the case didn't make sense to anyone. Top behavior analysis people are having trouble figuring it out. It's just not typical because usually they have like serial killer experts and child abduction experts and none of them can kind of figure it out. Um, There was also no patterns out there that matched the crime. So then why would you take the kids? So it's like, is it a ransom? Is it to sell them into slavery? Um, And so then they were like, if you find out why the children are taken, maybe that'll help us solve the crime. By the end of May, there's 150 people working around the clock to solve this crime. I mean, people want to fucking solve this crime. Um, a local woman comes forward with a new lead. And this happens on forensic files all the time. Like so many cases, I think, would never ever get solved if it wasn't for just like one wild tip. And so it's kind of interesting, you know, say something, see something, or, you know, switch that. But, um, so a local woman comes forward with a new lead. The night the family was murdered, she was traveling between Coeur d'Alene and Spokane. And around 2 a.m., she saw a dark-colored vehicle pull off just east um, to the house. And there were three men, and maybe one of them was involved in the crime. It didn't seem promising at all, but they were pulled over only one mile away from the house. So it's, like, worth investigating but also like i would never think that's a tip like you know what i mean if i saw a car in the middle of the night just driving off an exit like i don't know if it would i would call and be like maybe it's this car so it's kind of impressive yeah yeah. it's like i saw three guys a mile away from where this happened and they looked weird i mean yeah it is (laughs) kind of I've, I mean, I hope to help solve a crime one day or well I hope no crimes ever happen around me, too. OK, right. so <laughs> um, another informant calls um, as an anonymous tipster and was like, I think some of my associates, I I heard them talking about burying some bodies in Silver Valley, Idaho. So he calls with that and he gives the names of the three guys. Um I don't who cares, Mike, Ray, Ben. Okay, these are the guys, the guys like I heard them talking about burying a body. They did all have a criminal record and they drove a car that was similar to the one that the lady called in. Um, The cell phone activity analysis says that they were in the area of the crime scene around the time of the crime. So um, with these guys, they're like, okay, this is it. This is it. And so they're setting up surveillance and like getting ready to investigate these guys thinking they've zeroed in on who did it. But they get a call 2 a.m. Saturday morning that is earth shattering. FBI agents said that a local waitress, Amber Dern, just came back from her break and saw new people in her section and went there and it was fucking Shasta. She recognized Shasta's photo. And um, she said Shasta head down, hands in a prayer position and body language just screamed, help me. So she went over to the table, like everything was normal. She took the orders and then snuck back uh, into the rest, like snuck to the back of the restaurant and told the manager to call nine one one. And when the squad car pulled up, she walked outside and was like, "You need a call for backup. I am positive that this is Shasta and whoever fucking took her. So I mean, I hope Amber got a key to the city because she really like handled everything well. She was not the guy in the bus terminal making a scene and looking and talking. yeah, and, like she fucking handled. Take her a shit. note. Take a note from this waitress, you little bitch. You got to act like nothing is wrong. Um, so they enter cautiously and walk him out to the squad car with no real issues. And then the the cop grabbed Amber and was like, hey, go sit with the girl. And so Amber said that she sat with Shasta and that she started to cry. And so. Oh. And how long has she she's been with this man for two months now? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, And so. Shasta is rushed to the hospital, and Steve, the biological father, reunites with his daughter. So now they have Joseph Edward Duncan in custody. He's from North Dakota, and they just fu- they just start interrogating him. And this is like so crazy. Um, he's a level three sex offender and a fugitive uh, from an old molestation case from Minnesota. Um, his first sex crime occurred in 1978 when he was 15 years old, and at that point, he already admitted to. Um, raping like 13 boys. So he was like a fucking full on rapist by 15. And then two years later, in 1980, he got sent to prison in Kansas City for molesting a teenage boy. And there he was diagnosed a sexual psychopath. And he had like treatment and psych evals and therapy while there. During those years, he committed crimes, but he did not confess to them and they were not connected to him until he was put in prison for the crimes that he committed against the Grody family. So he was committing tons of crimes that no one was able to solve. So like then when he was finally arrested, all these unsolved crimes were solved.
1: So he went to jail in 1980 and he stayed in jail for 14 years and 94 and then he was released. And so Mm -hmm. and then he committed a bunch of crimes because he got out six years early.
2: Yeah, but no one caught him during those times. So he was just like living it up until 2004. So in 2004, he got charged with sexually molesting a six year old boy in Minnesota. But Duncan was not ready to go back to jail. So he borrowed 15 grand for bail and he skipped town. The fact that a judge offered this fucking lunatic bail, I don't understand it. I just don't understand it. Like, it's I, I, really wild. What the fuck? Like, he spent 14 years in prison. He did it again. Why are, does he get bail? I don't understand it. Yeah. So he wrote a lot of stuff on his webpage about um like society's persecution of sex offenders and that it's not fair the way he was treated. And he could have fought the case and risked prison, but he just didn't want to. So he went on the run to live out his ultimate fantasy. And his final blog entry, um, I just can't believe these killers have blogs. Um, So he wrote them right before the murders. And in quotes, he writes, I am scared, alone, and confused. And my reaction is to strike out toward the perceived source of my misery, society. My intent is to harm society as much as I can and then die. So. Wow. Um, But they're like, where the fuck is Dylan? Like, we're getting all these theories and things from him and... His history, but where is Dylan? But he invoked his Fifth Amendment rights and did not talk. They did find a lot of evidence in the car, shotgun, laptop, GPS device, empty package with zip ties that were used, and then a micro drive that contained images of the children while in captivity. Um, They can't find the murder weapon or anything that will lead to the missing boy. And they ran out of options. So they had to turn to Shasta. And I think they were like trying to spare her from like reliving all this. But they had to interview her to get information. And the show I was watching used the word haunting. And they said what Shasta said was just so fucking haunting. And I got excited that they used our word. But sad that anyone experienced anything so haunting. Um, So basically, she said that the night of the murder, she woke up to her mother calling for her and when she got to the living room she saw joseph duncan standing over her family with a shotgun
3: my god
2: he took the two kids and laid them in the backyard because he didn't want them to see what he was going to do to their family because he wanted to take them calm and so it wasn't like to spare them the violence he basically was like if they saw me murder their family they wouldn't have just gone with me and so he left them in the yard tied up um, while he did that and then he drove 95 miles away to St. Regis Montana and once um there he sexually assaults both of them they spent six (laughs) weeks in captivity and then he took Dylan into an abandoned cabin tortured him molested him and then shoots Dylan in the head in front of Shasta and burns the boy's body Jesus. He said he sh- he spared Shasta's life because he taught her how to love.
1: Whatever you say,
2: buddy. Yeah. Um, and then <laughs> one of the talking head authors, crime people in this special, said that she believes he had no intention into keeping her alive and he just fucked up with the diner and she's lucky to be alive and he would have never kept her alive. So I don't Thank really know. Thank God that waitress. Thank God for that waitress. Yeah um they did find the remains of dylan where shasta said the murder took place they confront duncan with all the evidence and he finally confesses he left minnesota to not go back to jail and was just driving looking for targets and he like by chance saw their house and saw shasta and dylan playing in the house uh, or like around the house and was like that's that's my person spent the next day and a half checking out the house he brought the weapon um like he he tried to commit the perfect crime and it took you know days of planning, and, but it was like a random family. He entered through an unlocked door while Brenda was asleep in the living room. He turned the weapon on her and said, where is the man of the house? And instructed her to lead him to the man of the house, uh, put zip ties on Mark. He wanted them to think it's a robbery because if he let them know that he wanted to take the kids, they would have fought him harder so he is he is smart unfortunately um and so he played it like a robbery so they like didn't fight him to protect the children so um we still don't know like why he went to that diner and went back to the town that some say it's like because he ran out of money um some say that Shasta did befriend him and like yeah like why would you go back to it's back in Coeur d'Alene Like that's like begging to be caught. Yeah, it's really confusing why he did it. And then he just pled guilty to three counts of kidnapping and three counts of murder and received six life sentences. And so, yeah, it's good he pled guilty because Shasta didn't have to take the stand. And I think everyone was trying to protect her. So December 3rd, 2007, he pleads guilty on 10 federal charges and he had nothing to say. Like his quote is, I have nothing to say. And then three years after these horrific crimes, he receives three additional life terms plus three death penalties. And he's sent to Terry Ho, Indiana's prison.
1: Those are for like previous crimes that he had not been like
2: tried for, but he probably confessed to. Uh, Yeah. So in 1997, there was a kidnapping and murder of Anthony Martinez of Beaumont, California, and um, he confessed to it. And then in 1996, he murdered two girls in Seattle, Washington, that he's confessed to but wasn't, like, convicted of. It's weird. He's really creepy looking, too. Very creepy. He looks like what you would think a creep looks like and, like, who to protect your children from. Um, And then this is just, Mm -hmm. like, a little fact, but the jurors were actually offered counseling after the case because the evidence was so fucked up fuck really yeah and there was video evidence of stuff like he videotaped the oh my god stuff and so they had to watch it and so a lot of the jurors needed help with their mental stability it's so crazy that this happened in 2005
1: because it just feels like a 1970s or 80s kidnapping or something just that He got away. There was like no evidence, like cell phone stuff, you know, like it just feels like a very old school type of horrific serial killer crime. And then in a new
2: school way, but like the way these crimes were connected that led authorities to connect to previous crimes was bloggers like bloggers found similarities between other crimes oh, and wow. his crimes and like the, it, it it is like what are cops for that bloggers waitresses like <laughs> all of these random people are doing your work but then if you watch like
1: the Cecil Hotel documentary, you're like, sometimes bloggers are fucking stupid and they get the wrong person and ruin their life. So yes. like, I do think bloggers can be good, <laughs> but they can be yeah, bad too. Yeah, I haven't too. watched <laughs> that
2: one yet. Um, So yeah, this is just um the rundown. He is dead and um, wishing all the best to Shasta. It's almost not fair that he died like
1: so early. He could have, I would have liked him in jail for like another 30 years. And she's probably God, like in her 20s now, huh? Poor Shasta.
3: All right. Well, I hope she's moving on with hope and love. This episode comes out today is May 18th, and this crime happened um, May 15th, 2005, so it's the 16-year anniversary of her family's, her first three families' deaths. Jeez.
1: Another tough one.
2: What are we going to get a fun murder, (laughs) Lisa? Well, we got one person mad about the microchips. Did you see that message? (laughs) She goes, I'm very disappointed you guys didn't cover a crime. I just needed to let you know that.
3: Oh, one person. I didn't even see that. I was just going to say, if you want to end this episode on a fun note, you can mention that after the episode, Sugar, you said you had never heard the name Vance in real life. And this story, Lisa, there was an older brother named Vance. Oh,
2: wow. Okay, that is a fun ending. Vance. And I hope the Vance, I hope, yeah, I hope the the boys are good. And, you know, she did get to be with her dad. But yeah, it's rough. Yeah, like she at
1: least has some surviving family, and hopefully, like she has her brothers.
2: It's just scary. I, I mean, not to ruin the movie, The Strangers, for everyone, but that horror movie is really scary because it was just like random. Yeah, the randomness of it is um scary. Like that some killer from Minnesota, yeah, can escape from court and drive to Idaho, see your kid, and be like, "I'm gonna kill you guys two days from now." Like. It is haunting. Yeah.
1: And I think that's what they try to, you know, also a highlight in the episode is that everybody that Gaetano killed was a stranger. It wasn't like these were personal people he got close to. He just like stalked and hunted people, you know? It's really fucking scary. Um, but let's take a quick moment and hear from our very special guests. <laughs>
2: I am so excited for this guest. It truly, I think when I found out, I jumped up and down. (laughs) Huge guest, guys. He is a
1: Golden Globe and Tony Award nominee. He uh, famously played Richie Valens in La Bamba, one of my formative movies as a child. He's currently playing Lieutenant Gil Arroyo on Fox's Prodigal Son. And you, if you did your homework... Sadly, recognize him as Victor Paul Gaetano. Guys, check out our interview with the one and only Lou Diamond
2: Phillips. We are so excited, and we need to tell you all of our friends that we told that we're interviewing you lost their fucking <laughs> minds.
3: Like, you still ew- alive? <laughs>
2: People were like our friend who's Filipino was like, he is the king of the Philippines. <laughs> and then two of our friends are like, we watched La Bamba every single day on HBO for years. <laughs> like everyone was like, was so excited and so are we. So we're, yeah, we're pumped. So,
0: so uh, all my interviews yesterday were about the fact that, uh, Fathom is putting, uh, La Bamba back in the movie theaters, Oh, cool. it's ridiculous. <laughs> so so yeah, I did a bunch of interviews yesterday with uh you know writer-director Luis Valdez. And that man, that was a that was a lovely little trip down memory lane.
1: I mean, that's where I first knew you. That movie came out when I was a kid and I loved it so much. So we're so honored to talk to you. And this episode is classic of SVU. I know it was a long time ago. No worries if you forget some stuff from, you oh. know, from the, the shooting
2: time of Fault. The showrunner Neil Bear, when we asked his favorite and or most haunting episodes, he said this one.
0: Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty intense. <laughs> I mean, that's that a lot for SVU. You know, uh, I know. One of my favorite stories about that particular episode was was uh, I, I I said yes, sight unseen. Uh, <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't even read the script because I'm I'm a fan of the show. I've been a fan of the show, you know, since its inception. I've also known Mariska, uh, man, since the, the late '80s she did a tiny little independent film that a lot of my friends were involved with. So, you know, I, I met her at a, a screening of that way back in the day. So we kind of ran in the same circles for a long time. So it came to me and it's like, yes, a hundred percent. I will do this, whatever. I don't care. And they said, well, you're the bad guy. I said, well, I come on, I figure, you know, <laughs> and uh, my daughter, Grace was, eight nine at the time or whatever and i remember i said uh yeah i listened dad's got to go you know to new york city next week to do this show uh and she goes, oh what show are you doing i said while well, i'm doing svu she goes, can i watch it and i was like <laughs> i don't think so <laughs> we, we, we didn't let her watch svu anyway and it was like <laughs> no no you can't you can't watch this episode and grace went are you the bad guy and i'm like yeah i'm the bad guy she goes Do you kill people? I said, "Yes, I kill people." I've seen you kill people. (laughs) I said, "Not like this." (laughs) So uh, yeah, um, you know, serial killer, pedophile—that's that's that's a good one to have on the old resume. Seriously, man. Well,
1: I, I, what I was going to say is so interesting about you. I don't know if you can speak to this, but like you've played Richard Ramirez, you've played this terrible Victor Paul Gaetano, this serial killer in this episode, but then in a lot of other stuff, you play the cop, you play the good guy. And I feel like a lot of actors get pigeonholed into one or the other and you kind of seamlessly can be like evil or the hero. Like, what do you think that is
2: about you? Uh, f- <laughs> <laughs> I don't care that it's because you're talented. But... Oh, thank you. That's a good no, answer. But there's pl- there's okay. plenty of talented
1: people that always yeah. play the cop or always yeah. play the
0: murderer, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, it's true. Uh, no, I've, I, I, have been fortunate. I mean, you know, I, I, literally, I have to go back to, uh, theater training, you know, and, and not just the theater training, but the, the, um, the appetite that theater training gave me for roles where uh, I, I, from a very early age, I thought, I don't want to play just one thing, you know? And there are many, many actors uh, who are famous for doing one thing. And they're very, very good at it. You know, that's, that's what they do. That's their brand. And, you know, I mean, not, not to mention anybody contemporary, but, you know, your John Wayne, your Clint Eastwoods, you know, they are personalities, they're iconic Mm -hmm. Uh, and and people love them so much that they they don't want to get out of that lane. For me, I always considered myself uh, a character actor. Uh, and thank goodness, you know, that, that translated into being the character lead. But it meant that I could do, you know, a lot of different kinds of roles. Uh, and, you know, in, in college, I was, you know, doing everything from from Mammoth to Shakespeare, to Moliere, to improv comedy and hopefully honing talent in all of it. You know, so so that's why when you look at my you know, uh, body of work, you just go, what? <laughs> yes. horror, Western comedy drama. And, you know, the Wiggles. Yeah. The wiggles, the Sesame wiggles. street, <laughs> the Wiggles. you know, that takes a very special kind of talent. Uh, and so, you know, I, I just enjoy the genre of employment more than anything else. Uh, so yeah, but I mean, it's because I love characters. I love creating characters and I, and I, you know, apply a, a few different rules, you know, I mean, you cannot judge your character uh, and, and, you know, and in a situ- especially in a situation like this, if you hold that character at arm's distance, if you're trying to tell the audience constantly, if you're apologizing to the audience going, this isn't me, this, I'm just, I'm acting. Then you, then you lessen the impact on them. It's not fair. It's not fair to the character. It's not fair to the audience. So, you know, when you take a job like this, it is your job to scare the shit out of people. Uh, yeah, you, you did you, it. You have to be brutal. Uh, and what's interesting because you mentioned this, I literally look at Gaetano as the, the amuse-bouche to Richard Ramirez, although I didn't know it at the time. Oh, interesting. And uh, what was, I think, really informative for me and that I carried from this particular um, uh, experience was, was Paul McCrane's direction. And it's like, make this guy boring. Uh, uh, Killing people and draining a child's blood and all of that is so mundane to you. And in that normalcy, in that apparent, I don't know, uh, homogenization of of a killer mind, you know, uh, uh, that's what's frightening. And the little video uh, clip that we did, you know, where he's describing how much blood came out of the body. He went, no, no, less, less bland, bland. And it was amazing. You know, it was amazing. And it was and, and, and when I ended up doing the research for Richard Ramirez and watching him talk about being a Satan worshiper and all this other stuff, you know, he's just you know, it's, it's just so boring. You know, he's just talking about it like he's talking about the weather, you know, and it's just like, wow. And that's chilling more than growling and more than screaming and yelling. Right. It's that, that the fact that 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 mind is already there, that, that they don't have to flip a switch. This is where they live.
2: And were you able to find empathy and understanding with that character to play him or that's not necessary? Because you said you have to connect with them. Like, do you have to trick yourself into liking him or you can hate him and play him?
0: I can hate him. Uh, oh, I can absolutely yeah. hate him. I mean, you know, being being the father of four daughters, somebody yeah. like that. I, I'm sorry. I have I have very little sympathy, uh, yeah. you know, I mean, because because they cease to become human, you know, uh, and there wasn't a big backstory. Having said that, though, in doing the research for Richard Ramirez, I go, how else could he have turned out? How else could he have turned out? Uh, The book by Philip Caputo, The Night Stalker, is brilliant and so, you know, illuminative of, you know, how he was built from a very, very early age. And that includes the possibility of chemical alteration because both his parents worked uh, in a boot factory. Where they were dealing with toxic materials day in and day out for hours at a time, so you know that's that's one thing. He he, he suffered a head injury uh, at a very early age, and then all the sociological influences on him. You know, from an uncle who came back from Vietnam and was an absolute monster himself. Yeah, I read about that players, man. That's uh, really terrible. And sexualized photographs, souvenirs that he took, and so therefore once again taking the humanity out of that. Uh, and and you know and then th- just just this sad sad state of wanting to be somebody wanting to be powerful being so empty inside that that the only way you know you could do that was was to uh, exert power and violence over someone helpless you yeah. know did
2: you f- uh, film at the bus station what, how was it filming with so many people and were those extras or were they really people at the bus station um <laughs>
1: it was just so crowded. It's like a huge, I mean, you're weaving through a million crowds and like, it's really,
0: yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really, really cool. And the, you know, I mean, and, and this is the advantage of being on a hit show is they have a budget, you know, so they, you know, uh, and, and at the time I, I hadn't, I hadn't worked in New York since I'd done, uh, um, you know, the King and I, but I have this love of New York and I, and, and filming in New York, like what I'm going through right now on prodigal son, you just look around and go, yeah, you know, this is, this is it. And here we are in this bus station. Um, and they can close off a certain area. And we had a number, a number of background artists, but, within those background artists, we had quite a few stunt performers so that you could run over somebody or knocking anybody. And if you did, it wasn't a big deal because they were expecting it.
3: Right. Oh,
1: I didn't even think about that. Cause yeah, there's a lot of places where when you run, you're knocking people out of the way Maloney's like out of the way to all these civilians. I didn't realize yes. that those would be stunt people because they've got to like, yeah, they have to
0: be. because Yeah. Next, next thing you know, the, you know, the background artists, bump, you know, <laughs> Can I get pay a little bit more? I got a bruise. <laughs> so those are yeah, those are those are definitely part uh, of of the film crew. But beyond that, they can't shut down the entire area. And so you know, it's it's always a little fun to uh, you know w- watch a, a big crowd scene in some place like Times Square because you can look in the background and see okay, civilian, civilian, civilian because they're staring at the camera. <laughs> you know, they're watching things go on. Right. So, So um, Yes, there were a number of, of background artists and stunt performers, but, you know, in the deep background, those are, those are real people going about their business and going, oh, SVU is shooting again, okay. <laughs> you know.
2: um, since you have, like, a theater background and you've been working for so long and a fan of SVU, I was wondering if any of your friends have been on episodes or there's any episodes that stick out to you that you've seen that you really like.
0: Wow. Wow. Uh, <laughs>
2: Cause everybody's done SVU,
1: right? Yeah, no, that's just
0: it. Yeah, I mean, you go down the list of people and it's just, it's just crazy wacky good. You know, Charlene Woodard, who, you know, in the first season of Prodigal Son played uh, Malcolm's therapist, uh, uh, speaking of theater and the, and the intersection of that, uh, you know, she was, she was, uh, ended up getting killed, but had a lovely sort of recurring role uh, as a, uh, a sort of a street social worker, you know, and Charlene and I had done a play together uh, ages and ages ago uh, at the La Jolla. Yeah, Charlene Woodard. Uh, uh we had done uh The Good Person of Sessuan uh in a new translation by Tony Kushner. Um and uh uh we we almost got to New York didn't. And-
1: oh my god, that's Sister Peg. We literally do a segment every single week on our podcast where we say, What would Sister Peg do? And we mention like a charity or like an organization because yeah. yeah. her character is so iconic on the show.
0: Exactly. And she's amazing. She's, she is that. She is just This beautiful light, uh, a wonderful human being.
1: Um, Can we ask you a question? A little bit more uh, SVU questions. So you got to work with these little kids, but like you're this terrifying character. So like in between takes, are you like goofing around with these kids, being like I'm not a bad guy, or are you like staying evil
0: so that they stay in character? No, 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 (laughs) no. You know it's it's interesting. Um, You have to trust the person that you're working with. It has to be a dance, and so these kids could not have performed. Uh, they, they wouldn't have even let me pick them up, you know, if they were afraid of me. So mm-hmm. it's, it's about, and, and, and having just met them that day, you're hanging out and you're making jokes and you're talking and you saying, Hey, what's, what are you interested in? And, you know, yeah, and, and, and becoming friends because it's like, okay, so in this tape, I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to run with you. And I'm going to be looking really, really, really mean, but I'm just acting, you know? So it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's necessary to, to, engender that level of, of trust because otherwise they're, you know, going to be stiff as a board and not, and not, you know, be able to actually act with you.
2: And how was it uh, stabbing Mariska in that?
0: <laughs> well, the other, the other um, uh, amazing detail to, to the filming, the behind the scenes stuff is that, you know, if you look at it closely, I mean, Mariska's pregnant. Oh, She's I didn't pregnant know. when we're shooting this. And she's, oh my so gosh. yeah. So they're, they're, you know, they're, they're, shooting her really tight and from behind and, you know, they're, they're the very, very few profiles, man, because they can't reveal that she's actually pregnant. And so for me, I'm like, Oh, my, that's one more twist here. I got to be so careful because she's pregnant, <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know? So it's like, uh, um, it, it was very funny. And, and she was, such a sweetheart, man. So game. So, you know, just, and then, you know, I got to hold a gun to, to Maloney's head, you know, you really have the dream role. I mean, you got
1: to assault both of the main characters exactly. and then get shot <laughs> in the head myself. So it's like a
0: dream come true. So, uh, uh, and, and then, you know, you just do the whole drill. but once again, it's, it's the, uh, the trust, you know, and, 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 uh, Mariska and Maloney could not, do those roles without, without being, you know, incredibly game for, for anything that comes along. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm literally pressing this gun into Chris's, you know, temple and say, no man, go ahead, go go dimple it, go dimple it, (laughs) get in there. You know, it's like, okay, you know, if you're cool with it, uh, you know, I'll bring it.
2: I don't have an SV related, but I was just going to ask about what you're writing and working on now. Ah,
0: yay. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, I mean, speaking of, well, not speaking of, but, uh, you know, the pandemic uh, actually having a silver lining. i had been working on a novel for 10 years. When my wife and I uh, first got together, she was reading a lot of my writing, you know, and I've written screenplays and plays and that sort of thing. And she is an amazing artist. And she showed me these drawings um, that were supposed to be for a graphic novel that were inspired from Hans Christian Andersen's The Tinder Box. Uh, and so uh, I looked at these and I went, oh, my God, this is like this post-apocalyptic Kurosawa infused fairy tale, a little like Star Wars. And I thought, this would make a great movie. Let's do this. And she loved the idea, too. So I wrote the screenplay. Um when we read the screenplay, we realized that nobody was going to give us millions and millions of dollars to make this movie. So talked to my manager about it. He loved the idea. He goes, well, write the novel, you know, but my day job kept getting in the way. And, right. and uh, so it took about 10 years. And then it sold like the November before the, the, the pandemic hit, uh, the plug got pulled on prodigal son in March. And so I was able to do the final edits and the agent's notes and publisher's notes and, you know, editor's notes, wow. uh, while I was sitting at home, which was great. And, uh, the tinderbox soldier of Indira just got released last, last November. And, uh, it has 30 illustrations from my wife, Yvonne, uh, which are sort of amazing, but it, it's funny as I was writing the novel, she was like, I don't. Draw sci-fi why she you know as, as a movie when she when we said it in space she was cool with it but as a novel she's like I don't draw a fi sci- I don't draw spaceship <laughs> I don't draw fantastical <laughs> creatures you know but she got out of her comfort zone and she she really uh, uh, the, the the, illustrations are beautiful because they're they're sort of graphic novel meets German woodcut which is her background oh. uh, uh, meets you know uh, retro steampunk sci-fi you know and so they're really really cool.
2: Holy shit, Lou Diamond Phillips, a multifaceted man. I mean, I can't believe it. Yeah, actor, writer, singer. Who, who else is adopted by different races? I know. I don't know if we, we didn't even talk about this
1: with him, but he's been officially accepted into, like, an indigenous tribe. He's He's been officially recognized by, like, the Latino community. Like, he is literally, he's Filipino, but he's a man of
2: all, of all people. Everyone wants him in their group, and... <laughs> Yeah, the king and I, I mean, he sings, he's attractive, he's writing books. It seems, you know, he seems like an attentive father. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. But let's
1: jump into our postmortem. What did we learn from this horrible episode?
2: <laughs> and I learned a lesson from him. You know, what I learned from him is like, like you take every job type of thing. You like expand your horizons, you play different types of characters and skills. And like, I just enjoyed the way he talked about his career in life and how you have to just like go along for the ride and then you can last 30, 40 years having a good time. And I, you know, I enjoy hearing inspirational stories like that because sometimes you audition for things for years and you just don't get stuff. So it's like nice to hear someone be like, yeah, you just do stuff. Right. And if you don't do that, you you go direct to play, or you go act there, or you go on the road. I don't know, or you get adopted by the Cherokees. Like it's wild. <laughs> but I also what I learned from the episode is like you gotta go to therapy, or Go to therapy. How many more I times know. can we talk about this?
1: Yeah, you can't be in a relationship, a close work relationship, a romantic relationship, any kind of relationship with the kind of anger and weird crap that he carries around with him. You got to go to therapy. And you know what? Huang is busy. Huang cannot be your therapist. <laughs> Huang he is, is a full on FBI profiler and, and psychi- psych- psychologist, whatever.
2: He's too busy. He's also, too busy. if you're helping the police in an undercover investigation, play it cool. I will never forgive that Western Union man. <laughs> I think he's responsible for that child's death. Um, keep
1: your eyes peeled like that. Waitress saved Shasta Groney's life. Like, keep your eyes peeled. If you see Amber Alerts, look at them. And like, because like, honestly, that woman, her eagle eye is like the reason that girl is alive and the reason that guy was arrested.
2: Yeah. Also, if you are in charge of the criminal justice system, let's not let people skip town on bail. Like, I don't know. If oh someone's just like a full-on killer, like keep them in jail. I don't understand. Yeah, yeah. I just don't understand the bail system when it comes to white men who kill. But oh yeah, because the real life man was white. Right. Yeah.
3: I learned if an actress is pregnant, you can just um zoom in on their face and not show their body ever in an episode. <laughs>
2: Yeah. I mean, most people that Kara and I meet on our Zooms have no idea Kara is about to pop. Yeah. Just keep it tight. Shoulders up, baby. Yeah. It's just also cool. It's also like if you watch TV and you're like, oh, no, why is that actor not there anymore? It's like it was a contract (laughs) issue or they had a baby, you know, like it is wild that there's just things outside of the story that push the story. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, kind of cool. If you're in a standoff, I don't also like give up. A, sh- a sharpshooter will shoot you. You know what I mean? Like these people holding people hostage and in the thing. I know they're not doing well mentally, but like you're gonna get shot. Yeah, you're not surviving holding two police officers hostage. You know what I mean? Like, right? I just don't understand. Stop taking people hostage. That's my tip (laughs) of the day. It's not worth it. Why do you want to go to jail? Stop holding people hostage. Don't do it. That's uh, (laughs) that's a lot of
1: lessons. That's pretty good. A lot of lessons, a lot of lessons for today. Um, Now, let's jump into our What Would Sister Peg Do segment. Um, This is where you guys know where we kind of direct you towards an organization, a resource, something to kind of give you more info on uh, one of the topics we covered today. I mean, we honestly were just the whole time that Lisa was doing telling us about this true crime, thinking about poor Shasta and like rebuilding your life after so much tragedy and trauma. So we today are going to shout out the National Center for Victims of Crime, which is uh, victims org. They are a nonprofit that advocates for victims' rights, they train professionals who work with victims and um they're just a trusted source on of information for victims'
2: issues. So go check them out and um Yeah. And Kara, you know, I am very passionate about this, learning all this through the podcast. I am like we need to help people after they've gone through traumatic things. They're not going to act normal when abnormal things happen to them. Mm -hmm. And we have to stop judging people that are doing destructive things with their life because they are they could be healing from a horrific event in their lives. So I'm just really grateful for this pod. You know, I'm learning, too. So I'm happy about that. And next week, we're going to be watching Glasgow Man's Wrath. We've heard your requests and we are fulfilling them. It's season 16, episode six. Uh, Join us in this woodsy episode on Hulu or Peacock. Go to the local library. We had a librarian message us and she liked the shout out. (laughs) Somebody also just requested this episode yesterday and it's like,
1: we're on it. Yeah,
2: we're listening.
1: We do what what you do. We do what you tell us. (laughs) (laughs) See you guys next week. Bye-bye.
2: that's messed up is an exactly right production if you have compliments you'd like to give us or episodes you'd like us to cover shoot us an email at that's messed up pod at gmail.com follow the podcast on instagram at that's messed up pod and on twitter at messed up pod and follow us personally at kara clank and at glitter cheese As always, please see our show notes for sources and more information. Thank you so much to SVU Superfan and our incredible producer, Hannah Kyle Crayton. And to our sound engineer and personal hero, Annalise Nelson. And to Henry Kapersky for our theme song. To Carly
1: Jean Andrews for our artwork. Thanks to our executive producers, Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff,
2: Danielle Kramer, and everybody at Exactly Right Media. Listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. Dun, dun. dun. (laughs)